You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. In India, I met farmers whose crops have been literally washed away by historic flooding. In America, I have witnessed unprecedented droughts in California. In Greenland and in the Arctic, I was astonished to see that ancient glaciers are rapidly disappearing well ahead of scientific predictions. All that I have seen and learned on my journey has absolutely terrified me. So the question now is whether we will have the courage to act before it's too late. And how we answer will have a profound impact on the world that we leave behind, not just to you, but to your children and to your grandchildren. As a president, as a father, and as an American, I'm here to say we need to act. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. All right, welcome to the Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And this is Jim Winepress. Jim, welcome back. It is good to have you back on the news. <laughs> oh, thank you for having me back. I've been looking forward to this ever since the last time we spoke. So, thank you. Yeah, you know, no, always, always. And Angie and I was joking, uh, you know, we were joking about you last week about, you know, you just gotten that string of weeks where it's just bad news, bad news, bad news. And anytime there's bad news, I just always think of you. Um, but I guess this week you and I, you know, kind of planned it to where we actually have a lot of good news. Four out of the six stories are really well, good. Well, I don't want you to lose listeners every time they see my name pop up as a co-host <laughs> because they don't want to come to press. Yeah. So, and you know, in the in the yeah. world of conservation news, you know, um, good news might be hard to get, but it's out there, and it's so important that we share that too. Um, you know, to make sure that everyone knows that all that work it is, we are working towards something. So, I'm glad we found good news yes. to share. Absolutely. That, that's a good point. That's a good point. Cause that's what we always talk about is, you know, organizations and people that are like you that work in conservation every day and you're working hard to, to save endangered species and educate the public on them. So it, it's really great. It's really great. And there's a lot of good news out there, but today let's just get the bad news out of the way. How about that? And then we'll end that's, on a good note. That sounds good. I like that. <laughs> Okay. So this one came up and it, and it really, because a few weeks ago I had a, had a really great talk with Theo Van Nort about the Antipodes Island and how they, you know, the million dollar mice, mouse project. Uh, that's episode 49. If you want to listen to that one, it's a great interview, really phenomenal trip that he took down there to, to look at invertebrates and see how the population was rebounding. But this story really, Rung true with me because uh, the headline is inside of the BBC, supersized mice threaten seabird colonies with extinction. And that's basically what Theo's part of that project was on the Antipodes Island that's, that's south of New Zealand, that the mice were killing off native wildlife, which are mainly birds, but also some of the invertebrates. So the 
this study is basically looking at the Gao Islands, and this one is in between Africa and Argentina in the South Atlantic. So I don't think it's quite subantarctic. It's it's almost there. But what is concerning is this is home to over 10 million birds. It's actually, they think, one of the most important seabird colonies on Earth. And these mice are going around and eating all the eggs and then also eating all live chicks. They've actually captured on camera traps nine mice eating a live chick, oh, which is geez. just horrific. Yeah, it is. yeah, yeah. So, and they said because the mice have been so, so successful there, they become supersized. So they're about 50% larger than a domestic mouse. And yeah, it's like they're just feasting and yeah, there's nothing stopping them. Yeah. 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 And then, you know, mice breed twice a year. So there's just more and more and more of them. Now, the, the problem is again, the researchers estimate about 2 million chicks are, are lost per year now on that island. And the, the big concern right now is the Tristan albatross. And there's only about 2,000 pairs remaining. And albatross is, a, Jim, I'll tell you, albatross is one that Jesse keeps telling me to, to do. Mm-hmm. And Angie and I, the albatross is on our radar. It is a, a credible bird because they mate for life and they only produce one egg every other year. So on this island, their chicks are dying or their eggs are getting eaten and they can't reproduce. So they, the, they're critically endangered and they pretty much are predicting that they're going to go extinct, that we're going to lose the Tristan albatross. That, that's another one that's going to get, uh, you know, in the, in the garbage bin. Now, some of the, the interesting stuff about it is, you know, the natural history or the behavior, you know, things we like to cover in this podcast. These are birds that have evolved on islands that are predator free. So they haven't had to deal with predators before. So these birds don't know how to deal with these mice. They they don't have the behaviors. They don't right Z- right through adaptations. Yeah, and they don't have time, right? I mean, it's like they don't have time to adapt to a new species because you know these mice were introduced in the 1800s, but now they're just rampant on this. Uh, I think it's 95 square kilometer island. So there is a campaign, and, and again, that's why I said go back to episode 49 and listen to the Antipodes episode because it's pretty much I think they're taking that blueprint. And a campaign is planned by 2020 to go in there. And it's probably something very similar that they did where they drop, you know, the, the baits with the poison right. and kill off all the mice and then go back and do a monitoring program to make sure all the mice are, are dead and gone. And that's apparently what they did in the Antipodes. Uh, they can do it on this island. But that's the, the bad news story of the day for me. I promise you the next two are good. <laughs> but... It just, again, highlights invasive species, you know, a lot of what these animals are facing, you know, the pressures and things yeah, like that. Yeah. All right. So my first story, I guess it's not necessarily positive, um, but it's it's a certain mm-hmm. amount of justice um, being upheld, which I can appreciate. Uh, so James Terrence Williams um, from Alaska, who operates a company called Inside Passage Arts, has been charged with illegally exporting and importing walrus ivory which is against federal law. Um, this story spoke mm-hmm. to me because I have a love for marine mammals. Um, one of my f- close friends in the field uh, worked with a walrus for a long time, and I was fortunate enough to do a couple training sessions with this individual animal. And walrus are just amazing animals. And you guys just gave them some much-needed attention. 
So, oh, they were, it was so fun to do them. It was so fun to do them like that, that neck balloon that they have around the trachea that lets them bob in the water. It's just, yeah, they're, they're incredible animals. Incredible animals all around. And this focuses on ivory, which everyone just immediately thinks of elephants, but there are other animals out there, Mm -hmm. you know, assess Mm -hmm. that ivory that are dealing with poaching. So, According to prosecutors, between 2014 and 2016, Williams sent this walrus ivory from Alaska to Indonesia to be carved. Because that's apparently the the best thing people want to do with ivory is Mm -hmm. carve it. Mm -hmm. Um, Then he would allegedly import that ivory back to the States and then sell under false pretenses as if it had been worked on and carved by Alaska Native artisans. Um, And this violates the Lacey Act as well as false labeling. And... I looked into the Lacey Act, and Lacey Act's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. So it's a U.S. law that basically bans the trafficking of illegal wildlife. Um, and in 2008, mm-hmm. on a side note, it, it, was, it was amended to include plants and plant products such as timber and paper. And it's mm-hmm. the world's first ban on trade in illegally sourced wood products, which I thought was so interesting because when we think of wildlife, we don't always think of um, trees and plants. But this this act does include that. So I thought that was interesting, and it wasn't because he possessed this ivory. It was what he was doing with it, the exporting to Indonesia and bringing it back and then mislabeling it. So I looked in a little bit of, I looked a little bit into the sale of ivory, specifically that of walrus, and there are a number of different Mm -hmm. ways in which it is legal to buy, possess, and sell walrus ivory. And and that just blows my mind. Mm Mm-hmm. So since he has, yeah. Yeah, it does. It um, does. And since this, and with these allegations for the crime, he could face terms of imprisonment up to 10 years and fines up to $250,000. So, you know, at least justice is being served here. But it's another aspect of wildlife poaching involving ivory that we don't commonly think of. No, yeah, yeah, it does, you don't. And it's, you know, it's interesting because we just, you know, covering the walrus and they're under a tremendous amount of pressure, you know, like polar bears as far as losing the sea ice up there. Now they're being pushed, you know, further south to places where they, they, they haven't been. So again, humans like this guy, walruses are easier poached now because they're on beaches and things probably around Alaska and parts of Canada where, you know, usually they're out on the sea ice or out exploring. So yeah, I mean, their population's in decline and we, the stupid ivory, like, God, who is buying ivory? I want to have a discussion with you and sit down and be like, why are you promoting this? An animal Mm -hmm. died for this stupid thing that you can carve with anything else, you know, wood, whatever. And the other thing I meant to say too, that's good. I brought up wood. There are endangered plants, endangered trees, endangered forests. So yeah, I mean, it it makes sense. There's a lot of, um, wood products that would be on that list. So that's good. That's good. I'm going to look into this and I'll, I'll see if I can post the Lacey Act as at least a link if anybody's interested on our show notes and they can go there. Yeah. And one last thing I wanted to add about this is I feel like, you know, in this podcast at zoos, aquariums, museums, every, everywhere that we're talking about conservation um, and endangered species, a lot of it focuses on the trafficking and poaching that occurs far away from us in parts of Africa mm-hmm. and Asia. But when I looked it up, um, America is the, after China is the second largest, um, country involved with illegal trafficking, you know, so we mm. don't commonly look at the states as 
a real part of the problem, but we really are. You know, black bears are being poached for their gallbladders. Uh, bighorn sheeps are being poached for uh, their horns. And then even deer hunting, um, white-tailed deer that, you know, their populations are all out of control right now because of the removal mm-hmm. of their natural predators. Um, you know, their management and the hunting for bucks, all of that, that can still be done inappropriately. And that's happening all here. Right. Yeah. No, you're right. You're right. That's true. It's, it is so easy for us to point the finger and then we never look at ourselves and like who's buying this stuff. It's, it's being sold in San Francisco. It's being sold. I think New York city is like the number one place oh, yeah. in the world. Or if I remember right, it's going, going back a few months, um, you know, where a lot of these animal products are, are shipped to because it's such an international city. Yeah. I mean, we got to look at ourselves too and say, Hey, what are we doing? You know, we can point to Africa and say, Hey, Kenya or well, Kenya is actually doing a good job, but you know, Hey Zambia, we don't want you hunting hippos, you know, because of this, that, and the other, but yet here in the States, the red wolf, you know, and, and a shout out to all of our red wolf friends out there in, in North Carolina is being, you know, legally you can go out and kill this critically endangered animal when there's 50 left. You know, it just makes no sense. It makes no sense. Yeah. Anyways, that's why we do this, right? <laughs> that's why you do what you do. Exactly. Raise awareness. And now yes. on to some good news, right? <laughs> yeah, here's the good news. All right. So that's all the bad news. So here's some good news. And it is it was an interesting week, you know, looking at some of this and what was coming across, you know, my Facebook feed and some other things. So my first one is, you know, the Magic Kingdom is going green and being that, you know, I've was living in Florida for a decade and I went to Disney World quite a bit uh, with my kids. It, it, I think it's a feel good story for, for many reasons. First, just, just to tell you what's going on there. Just at the end of this year, the Magic Kingdom is going to turn on a, a huge uh, 50 megawatt solar power facility, which is composed of more than a half million solar panels. And that's going to be able to power two of their parks fully by itself. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's actually really good news because it's not so much, you know, what Disney's doing and promoting Disneyland. I mean, so Disneyland's in California, Disney World is in Florida. You know, it's not so much promoting Disney World, even though, you know, I think it's a fun place to go with family. It's that they're taking notice because I said, okay, why are they doing this? And in the article that it talks about is because, you know, not only is Disney keeping an eye on their global reputation, but another they wrote is customers increasing focus on sustainability. This is a huge, huge issue that people are taking notice. So you, the listeners are the reason Disney's doing this. There are all the change that we're seeing this year, which has been really positive. And my next story, we'll get to that too in a minute, but you know, consumers. And so part of it is 79% of consumers say they seek out products that are socially or environmentally responsible. That's huge. That's huge. 10 years ago, people didn't care. You know, that's when plastic water bottles became the norm, right? Everybody would go in and buy plastic water bottles or, you know, straws or all these things. But now here we are a decade later and Disney's like, oh, we better do something. So they're going to solar powder, which makes sense because Florida's full of sunshine, right? So, exactly. yeah, no, so it's good. So Disney said, you know, they're what they're doing. Give them some kudos. They're going to cut their greenhouse gas emissions by more than 57,000 tons per year, which is almost about 9,300 automobiles from the roads. 
you know, there's still there's still some issues because that's probably how many people drive there per day. I know <laughs> trying to park there, but you know they're they're taking a positive step, so that's good. And it, yeah. And the only thing I'll tell Disney is now they got to target plastics and other waste because you know if they want to be fully green, they need to reduce that because I don't you know I don't know how many thousands of people are in those parks every day, but it's a lot, and there's a lot of plastic cups, a lot of plastic straws, things like that. So, so Disney, good job on you. Keep doing it and uh, keep going green. Yeah, that that's great news, and I've heard you and Angie say this many times over many different podcasts, but you know, vote with your dollar. You know, if you, you're going to support a place, you want to take your family someplace and you see that Disney is taking steps um, to be more sustainable like that, say, thank you for doing that. I'm going to spend a day at your park. You know, and that, yeah. that counts. <laughs> and you, and you spend a lot of money. Yeah. It's oh, a I lot of money. can't imagine. It's not cheap. <laughs> I think tickets are like 120 now. It's ridiculous. Oh, oh. But still, you know, for the kids, it's worth it. Anyways, all right. So, what's your next? What, what's your first feel good story? So, um, at my zoo in New York, we've just opened a new exhibit, and we've got um, some wonderful zebra. So, zebra are on my mind right now. And I came across an article mm-hmm. um, from the Wildlife Conservation Society announcing that on October twelfth and thirteenth, twenty four plains zebra were introduced into Tanzania, uh, and specifically into the. Ketulo National Park, located in the southern highlands of Tanzania, in partnership with their um, organizations on the ground. And this is the first time that zebras will be in this area, first time in more than 50 years, which is really exciting. Wow, Wow. okay. So historically, they just naturally occurred there. um, But farming for sheep um, and dairy purposes, along with hunting, basically led to their local extinction a while ago and they haven't been seen since for whatever reason um in recent years the farms have been abandoned and uh tim davenport who's the director of the wildlife conservation society's tanzania program saw that as um, the opportunity to rewild that region so not only like i said do they work with um, organizations within tanzania itself which is incredibly important working with the people who live there they know the place it's their place they were able to plant Mm -hmm. 4 million native trees in the Southern Highlands, um, which will eventually wow. grow into woodland passageways that will act as, well, basically passageways um, for other animals that will contribute to this ecosystem, this environment to make their way back. And this includes small antelopes um, and a species of primate because, you know, you need more than one animal for an ecosystem to be healthy mm-hmm. and to thrive. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, yeah, it's, you wouldn't think Tanzania, you know, you, I think of Serengeti Plain, you know, uh, Nagorogoro mm-hmm. Crater, things like that, that there would be plenty of plain zebra. But then you do think about human impact, obviously. So for them to be taking steps is, is pretty awesome. Yeah. And speaking of that, you know, the, of what people think, you know, Africa is or Tanzania is, um, mm-hmm. the location of this plateau is actually known as a montane grassland, which is the first time I've ever heard of this. It's a unique habitat that requires fire and grazing animals to maintain its plant diversity. So it -hmm. really relies on the presence of those zebra, those antelopes, um, and then those natural occurring fires that happen there to be a thriving ecosystem. So it's it's a unique environment that without the introduction of those animals won't really be what it should be. No, that's, yeah, it's interesting. You, you talk about fires and it's something I should research more. 
from my understanding, like we, we see all these horrific wildfires in the United States or around the world, really. Australia is, it comes to mind with some of their horrific, uh, forest fires and stuff. The, what I heard or, or what I remember reading was because we do such a good job fighting forest fires that we don't let nature take its course that there actually needs to be these fires to, to clear out some of the lower brush and, and like even germinate seeds and things like that. I don't know if you know anything about it. I know you're an animal expert, but not, uh, not a plant expert. No, I have, I have also read that there are certain um, species of tree that require fire for germination to occur. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So it is part of the, the natural ecosystem. So, you know, it's just when it burns down all these homes and displaces people where it gets really sad. Um, so uh, I, we're, we're creating conditions yeah. in, in which fire burns out of control and there are no more natural checks and balances. There you go. There you go. There you go. I meant to ask you, you were talking about your new exhibit. How are the naked mole rats? Are they out? They are out and they are doing great. Um, <laughs> so there you go. Yeah, no. Um, as far as I know, the colony is doing really well yeah. in their enclosure, and people get a kick out of seeing them. So you know, yeah, they're so ugly yes. you can't. Seneca look Park away. Zoo. <laughs> yeah, Seneca Park Zoo. Go check out the naked mole rats. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, those things are really cool. All right. So my final feel good story. Again, we're, we're keeping on the environmental path, and I and I chose this again because it's been our theme. Uh, for many months now, and that is the European Parliament, so the EU, is going to ban single-use plastics. And that is a great, great move by 2021. The single-use plastics, it, the movement is is going global because of our oceans, right? So the things that they're looking to, to ban are plastic cutlery and plates, cotton, swabs, straws, drink stirs, balloon sticks, things like that. You know, also single-use plastics at the stores, you know, are being across the world or most uh, industrial nations, I guess, are phasing out uh, plastic bags or they're charging you for plastic bags. Um, saw that in the States, saw that in New Zealand going on. The one person said in this article that if we didn't take any action, not just the EU, but across the world, by 2050, there'll be more plastic in the ocean than fish, which is crazy. So, yeah, so they're going to, you know, uh, hopefully institute this ban by 2021. Again, just to give you an idea of how long in this article, I found a couple cool graphs that how long they take till they totally degrade. So a styrofoam cup takes 50 years, an aluminum can, 200 years, a plastic diaper, 450 years, a plastic bottle, water bottle, 450 years, fishing line's a big problem, 600 years for that to degrade. So yeah, it's, it's really crazy. And so they, one of the things they had in here too, I thought was interesting, some data as far as marine litter on, on European Union beaches. So plastics or fishing gear is about 27%. The plastic bottles or other is 6%, non-plastic 18%. Single-use plastics, nearly 50% of the litter on European beaches are single-use plastics. So they think by banning these throughout Europe that it will actually improve ocean health. So again, fantastic news. That is a good move on their part. This movement's growing. Like Jim said, vote with your dollar. And and keep pushing it. Keep pushing it. Keep pushing it. And it's, it's not like these plastics are taking all this time to break down in one piece. They're 
being broken mm-hmm. up and then they're being mm-hmm. broken up and they're being broken up and now we've got all these microplastics everywhere because it's not like a plastic bottle is oh. you know being buried in the ground or falling in the water and staying together it's broken up repeatedly right 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 and then the fish eat it and then we mm-hmm. eat the fish so think about it folks i like i like seafood very much so but yeah it's it, the oceans need our help and our love and again good this is good news that there is a change going on around the world. We may not see it in your own country, wherever you are, you know, um, but just know there are other countries. You know, I'm kind of giving a hint <laughs> to the U.S., but there are other countries that, you know, um, are leading the way, and it's good, and we got to keep pushing. You know, don't let up, because the second we let up, other companies are going to, you know, not listen or not jump on the bandwagon, and we want them to jump on this bandwagon. All right, so what do you got? All right, so speaking of marine health, I'm going to talk about the vaquita. And assuming, you know, all of our listeners haven't been living under a rock for the last three to five years, everyone knows um, what the vaquita is and what's going on with this porpoise. So I won't go into too much detail um, about their issue going on, but it's been about two years since the last, like, official count of vaquitas when they said there were probably about 30 remaining in the Gulf of California, which is their mm-hmm, prime, mm-hmm. their only habitat. Uh, so recently, uh, Barbara Taylor, who's a biologist for NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, um, went out in a boat to go on a census. And in this paper that she was quoted in, she admitted her concern about, you know, having seen this um, rare species in the past and then being saying to herself, at some point I might never see them again. Which is which is really scary for everyone. Um, now, yeah. while the paper didn't go into detail about how many they actually ended up seeing, there was good news because they saw several animals that they recognized from their unique markings, and they saw new calves, which is fantastic because it shows that they are reproducing. Yeah. A lot of times, um, an, an endangered species, even though they might have a population of thirty or more, if they aren't close enough or the environment is too degraded for them to reproduce. You know, that's not helping the situation whatsoever. But despite however small this population there may be out there, they're still reproducing, which is good. Um, the calf sightings were particularly important because it might be the first time that they have seen evidence that vaquitas can produce one calf annually. Um, it was previously thought that they only produced a calf every two years. So if they can be producing and raising a calf every year, mm-hmm. that would just be showing their ability to increase their population on a much quicker and a much quicker rate than previously believed, which is. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Yeah. No, they're, they're in, they're in a lot of trouble. I mean, they're in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Well, well there definitely still needs to be a lot of work done on, on many different levels, you know, from stopping that illegal gill net fishing to, to gain the public support and making sure the people whose livelihoods, um, you know, rest in that area are still being maintained it's still nice to hear some good news that they are seeing calves. Right, right. And, I mean, it was, you know, to go back to that episode, I think it was like episode 12 is when we did the Vaquita. And the, the what did we say, Totobo? Tota, to, we both had trouble saying it. Uh, it's uh, Totoboa. Totoboa, yeah, Totoboa, <laughs> whatever. The fish, I, I, I think I distinctly remember the fish bladder goes for like $25,000. Like, it's insane. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's like the lottery, winning the lottery out there, if you get a bunch of those fish and these poor vaquita are getting caught up in these gill nets and drowning and dying, 
and now you're down to 30, between 30 to 50 uh, last count. So just to remind the, the listeners, what tr- happened last year was they were going to try to bring them all into captivity and do, you know, breeding, whatever, just keep them safe in ocean pens from running to gill nets. But when they did it, the female that they were trying to, to get in there, she stressed and died because apparently porpoises don't do well under human care under, under, you know, compared to dolphins, dolphins do just fine. So there's a lot of people that want to save this animal. We just don't know how to right now. And Mexico's stepping up too. I know Mexico from that podcast, Angie and I talking about how Mexico's doing uh, some good stuff. And it's just, it's just gotta be a joint effort. Um, in my research, I also read that. So in July, um, a United States judge ordered the Trump administration to ban the import of seafood harvested with gill nets um, in the vaquitas habitat, which is the um, Gulf of California, to hopefully, you know, slow down, decrease the likelihood of us inadvertently pushing the animal even closer to extinction. Right, right. And then this week we covered uh, Tasmanian devil. So if you haven't listened to that episode, listen to it. They are incredible marsupials, uh, mammals just a wealth of information and some of the things they're facing as far as the facial cancer that is transferable, which is ultra rare. So if you haven't listened to that episode, please do. It's, it's really good. But Angie and I got talking about genetic diversity and the reason the Tassie devils are having so much trouble is because they almost went extinct in the 1940s. Well, let me back up. They got isolated on Tasmania about 12,000 years ago. So that population that was there wasn't very robust genetically. Now they almost went extinct in the 1940s. They've come back, but again, there's not a lot of genetic diversity. So you, you have this rare cancer spreading like wildfire through the population and they're heading towards extinction. They're endangered. So when I think about the vaquita, God, that's the one thing that scares me for them is when you're down to that critically low number. Uh, I just pray and plead and throw good vibes to the universe that there's ways mm-hmm. that they can overcome that because it's it's not healthy for the population. Yeah, that genetic bottleneck can be a real issue. I, I know, um, what was it the black-footed ferret um, pod you guys did? I remember hearing about it there. Yeah. I know with um, cheetahs as well, yeah. there's those same issues. Yeah, yeah, cheetahs are having a hell of a time too. All right, but we're going to keep this upbeat. Yeah, we're doing great. Yeah, there we go. We're back, we're back. All right. <laughs> we're back to upbeat news. So we found a new bird. And I know you've got a really cool one coming up. So I, I, I'm just going to go through mine really fast. And then I want to, I want to hear about your new species. So a new species of hummingbird is called the blue throated hill star, which is been discovered in the Andes or the southwestern Andes near Ecuador. And it's really, really beautiful bird. I'm going to put the, uh, the picture up. It's got like a green uh, head with a blue throat. I mean, just beautiful uh, hummingbird. But they, these hill stars are really unique hummingbirds because they live in high elevations in the Andes and it's just, and they can live in cold temperatures. So what the scientists are excited about is, Hey, we're finding new species way up in these elevations. So who knows what we're going to find up there. Uh, not to bring Brad news, Jim. I don't know what it is. I'm going to find something where we find millions of them. There's only 750 of them left is what they think. So they're critically endangered already because of a fire, which we talked about, uh, livestock grazing and gold mining. So the good news is at least we've, we have discovered it. 
we know they're critically endangered. So now there's teams out there probably fighting to save this specific bird, which is good, which is what we need. Yes, right. Exactly. So there are people out there. There are people out there fighting a good fight. But yeah, it's pretty. It's a beautiful bird, and I'll post it up on the show notes. But Jim's got an incredible one. So what did you find? All right. So good news. For the first time in more than 80 years, researchers have fully described and named a new species of crocodilian known as the Central African Slender Snouted Crocodile. Say that five times fast. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I know. And yeah. Uh, their scientific name is Messistops Lepterhynus, which, again, to all the listeners, I by no means just pronounced that on the top, top of my head. No, you did good. That was good. <laughs> just shh, shh, quiet, quiet, quiet. You did great. You did great. Chris, the whole time you were talking, I was just pronouncing <laughs> it in my head over and over again. <laughs> so they're big words. I don't know where they come up with this stuff. Uh, you know, I love scientific names. I, I think that they're beautiful, yeah. and I love hearing about the meanings behind them because some of them are really interesting stories. Mm-hmm. But, man, I cannot pronounce any of them. Yes, yes, they're tough. They're tough. Uh, but this has just been uh, published um, in the journal uh, named Zootaxa um, on October 24th. So this is very, very um, fresh and good news. Um, now, up until now, it was considered to be the same species as its West African counterpart. Um, I won't go through the full name because, like I said, it's a tongue tie. For the longest time, they thought yeah. they were the same species that were just um, geographically separated. Um, now they do look slightly mm-hmm. different from one another. So the Central African croc has softer and a smoother appearance, while the West African um, crocodile has larger, heavier scales and rougher skin. Um, also, the newly described species lacks a bony crest on its skull that um, the West African species has. Um, here's what I think is the most interesting part of this, and these researchers and these scientists that go and they figure these things out, it blows my mind. So this is all shared by mm-hmm. Matt Shirley, who is the lead author and researcher um, at Florida International University. Um, with all species, the biggest difference mm-hmm. lies in the genes. And what they discovered was that the, they first diverged more than 8 million years ago as volcanoes arose in and around um, what is now known as Cameroon, where the animals are now located. Um, This volcanic activity created impassable mountains uh, and split the range of the reptiles in two, which, of course, cut off the gene flow, and hence you had two new species develop over time. Um, How these researchers are able to figure out, you know, when approximately this happened, they could figure out 8 million years ago that happened, that's, they're celebrities to me that they can do that kind of research. It's, I, it's, you know, oh, going back into my genetics, it's, yeah, yeah, they're like rocket scientists. The, the g- geneticists I've dealt with and I've dabbled in genetics, and Jim, I'm going to tell you, it is the most complicated field I think I could wrap my brain around. And the advances that we're seeing in science with genetics is incredible. So, you know, what they do, my understanding is you look at gene flow or how genes change over time. And you can estimate, estimate, you know, okay, these genes change every 2,000 years or every 200,000 years. That's why we look at mitochondrial DNA because it's so slow to change. So that's probably what they were looking at and looking at the differences in mutation of mitochondrial DNA. So that's how we've been able to do things like uh, track humans back to, you know, we can go and there's a great map. One of the pods, I posted it where we can track back the human race back to Africa, right? 
So yeah, but how they figured out, oh my God, man, oh, it's, it, it, your brain hurts. It hurts. It, it, it does. <laughs> and one of the things, um, that I've come to terms with as an animal care professional and a person who's really into science education, conservation education is I will never be as intelligent as these researchers that are out there in the field doing this work. I've, I've come to peace with that and I'm okay with it. But, you know, being able to talk to people. <laughs> Jim, I want, Jim, I've got a PhD in physiology and I will never be as smart as those geneticists. Never. Even Angie will admit that. And she's doing a lot of this well, work. N- knowing that it's, uh, it's my goal then is to take advantage of, um, you know, my position at the zoo and being able to, um, speak with you on this podcast is I can at least take this incredible work that these people are doing and I can talk about it to the best that I can and get that information out there. So that, that, that's my goal. (laughs) No. Yeah. It's great. It's great. Yeah. No. And it's great. I mean, we need that. Like it's the big thing from my perspective and that's where Angie and I like love doing this podcast is science communication. And I will tell you, a lot of scientists I've dealt with, they can't communicate with the public very well. <laughs> they just start throwing out big words and you're like, like the, whatever you just said about the crocodile's scientific name. And people look at them like, what language are you speaking? You know, so having you on and, you know, we're going to have Jesse on again and me and Angie, you know, putting it in layman's terms where everybody can try to understand it. And that's great. I mean, that's great. And it's great what you're doing because from my perspective, because I don't work in the zoo, I don't work in the zoo field, but what you do has a huge impact on the children that you deal with. Because when I was going to zoos as a kid and the public at large, so kudos to you, kudos to Jesse, you know, and all the people that work every day to educate and work in conservation. You know, you're our heroes. You, me and Angie, you guys are our heroes. So kudos to you guys. Thanks. Uh, next time I'm picking up lion poop in the rain, I'll, think back to this recording and I'll be like, I'm glad Chris said that. I need that right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're in the snow, man. Right. It's coming, right? Oh. December, January. So oh close. God. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, Jim, thank you. Thanks for uh, joining us this week. Um, maybe we'll have you next week. I got to talk to Angie. I, she's really busy, but um, you know, it was great having you. And we look forward to having you again. Oh, I I love being here. You give me the word, and I'll find some pieces of news to share. I love being here. So thanks again for having me. All right. Take care. All right. You too.